Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin as we approach Christmas and the celebration of the birth of the prophet Jesus with an analysis of why we have fallen from grace in not following the teachings and examples of Jesus who ministered to the poor, who ministered to the poor, and as the Gospel of St. Matthew makes clear, quote, truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. For mortals it is impossible, but for God all things are possible. Many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Joining us is the Reverend Dr. Liz Theoharis, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, alongside Bishop William J. Barber II, and the director of the Carers Centre for Religions, Rights and Social Justice at the Union Theological Seminary. She has been named by Politico as one of the 50 thinkers, doers and visionaries who ideas, uh, whose ideas are driving politics and by Sojourners as one of 11 women shaping the church and by the Center for American Progress as one of 15 faith leaders to watch. An ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church who teaches at the Union Theological Seminary, she's the author of Always With Us and co-author of Revive Us Again and her latest book is We Cry Justice, Reading the Bible with the Poor People's Campaign. And we'll discuss her article Politico. Congress approved $778 billion for the Pentagon. That means we can afford Bill Back Better. And how in February she and the Poor People's Campaign confronted Senator Joe Manchin in his home state where there are more than 700,000 poor and low-income West Virginians out of the 140 million poor and low-income Americans nationwide. We will discuss Manchin's casual cruelty in dismissing the poor who depend upon the child tax credit as crackheads who spend taxpayers' money on drugs and our priorities as a nation spending freely on the Pentagon's machinery of death while resisting the need and refusing to invest in improving the quality of the lives of the American people. Then we'll explore further why we have become a society of winners and losers, with so many of our fellow citizens homeless and destitute, in what has become a disposable society instead of the entitlement society that Joe Manchin and other conservatives like to argue we are becoming while legislating to prioritize help for the rich and powerful. Joining us is Richard Parker, who teaches economics and public policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and is a senior fellow at the Shorenstein Center. He is a former managing editor of Ramparts and co-founder of Mother Jones and serves on the editorial board of The Nation. His books include The Myth of the Middle Class and John Kenneth Galbraith, His Life, His Politics, His Economics, and we will discuss what can be done to rescue Biden's Build Back Better plan to invest in America's social infrastructure and how we can win the battle to save American democracy from a permanent Republican-engineered tyranny of the minority. And before we go to our first guest, in order to be free of any association with medical fraud and political fiction, I recently resigned from KPFK, Pacifica's Los Angeles station, so background briefing now is completely independent and remains commercial-free, corporate-free, but relies entirely on your support to keep providing you with the daily briefing, which is free to the public. 
To those of you who can support us for as little as $5 a month, we hope that you become subscribers by making a tax-deductible donation to our non-profit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air on a growing number of radio stations across the country and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. Joining us now is the Reverend Dr. Liz Thea Harris, who is the co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, alongside Bishop William J. Barber II and the director of the Caris Center for Religion, Rights and Social Justice at the Union Theological Seminary. As an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church who teaches at the Union Theological Seminary, she's the author of Always With Us and co-author of Revive Us Again, and her latest book is We Cry Justice, Reading the Bible with the Poor People's Campaign. And she has an article at Politico, Congress approved $778 billion for the Pentagon. That means we can afford Build Back Better. Welcome to Background Briefing, Reverend Dr. Liz Theoharis. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us as we approach Christmas, the the birth of the prophet Jesus. I'm not sure that there's too many people in politics, particularly on the right in this country, that have read the Beatitudes or at least understand the Gospel of St. Matthew in particular. And it seems as if there's a huge element in this country that has completely distorted the central message of the life of the prophet Jesus as one who ministered to the poor. He didn't carry an assault rifle. He didn't hate homosexuals. He didn't celebrate capital punishment. He didn't fly around in private jets shaking people down for money uh, as televangelists do. How did we lose sight of the, or so much of so-called Christians in this country, lose sight of the central message and example of the prophet Jesus whose birth is being celebrated in these holidays. Well, indeed, uh, the the Bible from Genesis to Revelation um, is actually a, a book that talks about the ending of poverty, um, the putting forth of of dramatic and bold solutions, um, which is often called the reign of God, the kingdom of God, the empire of God, and indeed Jesus Christ, you know, and other prophets throughout the Bible you know, arise at times of, of great uh, opportunity, but also of great crisis and danger um, and suffering, um, uh, not unlike uh, the situation where we're living in the United States and the world right now, where 140 million people are, are poor or, or one emergency away from economic ruin. Um, and yet, as, as you said, uh, we have so many people, um, including Christians, who uh and then politicians who who claim to be Christian, who are are defrauding the poor, who are, in the words of Isaiah 10, um, passing um, legislating evil and uh, making policies that deprive the poor of their rights and make women and children, uh, homeless children, their prey. I mean, this is what we're seeing right now. And and you know, I it's not it's not a new phenomenon. It's not new that those in power um, take and try to use biblical texts and the story of, of Jesus um, to be able to kind of uh, 
prop up the status quo, to, to justify poverty and inequality and racism, to say that, you know, if, if God wanted to, to have abundance for all, uh, then, then God would do so. Um, and, and yet, uh, it also is not new where people are coming together and saying what's really in our biblical text, what's really in our sacred traditions. Um, is is a, a message of liberation, a message of justice, a message of, of love and truth, and, and what the Bible really talks about um, at its core, um, and what Jesus is, is about uh, to his core, is the, the bringing of good news um, to uh, uh, the poor and to those that have been marginalized and locked out and, and locked up. And, and so um, it, it's it's very troubling to see the way that the Bible and, and our religious traditions and Christianity and Jesus himself have been used and misused to justify oppression. Um, but, but it's just that it's the misuse of, of our traditions and of, of who Jesus really is um, to be where we are today. Well, it sort of comes into focus because of the politics of the moment with Joe Manchin torpedoing Biden's Build Back Better agenda, and and apparently he was influenced uh, because his office got a phone call from a grandmother who claimed that her daughter was a crackhead and the child tax credit money going to her was being used to buy drugs, and he sort of dismissed the whole package, which is largely about alternative energy, and of course Manchin is in the coal business, uh, so he's trying to preserve an industry that's killing us all. But you and Reverend Barber and the Poor People's Campaign, you went to West Virginia to meet with him back in February. And it's extraordinary to think that there are, what, 700,000 poor and low-income people in West Virginia who Manchin is giving the back of his hand to. Will those people vote? What explains the alacrity with which he could be so cruel towards the poor? Well, I think uh, it's really important for us to actually, you know, have some conversation about, you know, who does Joe Manchin really represent? He keeps on claiming that he's doing this on behalf of, of poor and working people in West Virginia, and it's in, in people's best interest, and it's what people are saying um, that he should be doing. And that is nothing but a lie. Um, we have been in West Virginia. Um, we have a Poor People's Campaign Coordinating Committee that has been organizing West Virginia for, for years now, for months, as as especially more and more attention has come on to Joe Manchin, uh, folks that are living in from the hood to the holler, as they like to describe, um, uh, poor white, poor black, poor indigenous people um, all across the state who are, are saying that, that no, there's nothing that Manchin is doing other than um, uh, taking care of, of himself and his family and um, his wealthy corporate donors. Um, and none of this is on behalf of the people. I mean, if you look at um, if you look at West Virginians' positions, um, Democrat, Republican, and Independent, on voting rights, um, something that he's blocking and has been blocking. Um, you know, 80% of people across a party line um, support the expansion and protection of voting rights. If you look at Build Back Better in West Virginia, you know, it's somewhere between 68 and 75% of people, again, cross party lines that are saying they support the child tax credit, they support um, 
the different provisions of the Build Back Better plan. So when he's saying that he's doing this on behalf of the people and he's, you know, he's just representing his constituency, his constituency is the Chamber of Commerce and the corporations and, and the climate polluters, um, of which he is one. Uh, and, and what he's doing this on behalf of is his, himself and his family um, to, 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 the, to really hurting, um, uh, the, as you said, more than 700,000 uh, poor and low-income people in West Virginia, uh, more than 350,000 low-wage workers that he has refused to raise wages on uh, for. And, you know, I think what we have seen in the motorcades and the rallies and the marches that, that folks from West Virginia have led against Joe Manchin is that, you know, what he, what he stands for is immoral and it's wrong. And that indeed people will make that loud and clear at the ballot box, but they're making it loud and clear now. We're just not paying attention. You know, uh, right now our, our, our media will often, you know, cover Manchin, but not the people of his state who have been crying out and calling out saying, this is, this is not okay. Uh, We're, we're, you know, close to last in everything. And here you have a senator who is supposed to be, you know, uh, protecting our interests, who is, who is just selling the poor out. And so I think when it comes to this question of, of voting, I, it's a really important one. The Poor People's Campaign has come out with a couple of different studies over the last couple of years, one that we just uh, released in October that talked about the, the impact of poor and low-income voters um, on U.S. elections. Um, and what we saw in 2020 was that um, a larger uh, number of poor and low-income people turned out and, and were, were deciding factors in, in the 2020 outcomes. And, and that's because uh, of a number of things. I mean, one was that they finally heard some candidates talking about the issues that impact poor and low-income uh, people. I mean, one third of the U.S. electorate is poor and low income. In, in many of the battleground states of 2020, 40 percent of people were low in income voters who, who participated in that election. And, 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 that, and, and people's participation was, was clearly key. Um, and so instead of, you know, kind of writing off uh, poor and low income people that they're not going to vote or, or that they're not um, interested in, in politics, our nation would do well, and Joe Manchin included, to take seriously the power of what some people are calling, and, and we've put on our report, uh, this a kind of sleeping giant of, of poor and low-income voters. Because again, from the, the research that, that Columbia University and others are putting together for us is showing is that, that this is really a, a group of people that have the power to, to transform the entire political landscape. But where does this idea that Manson clearly has, and a lot of, and particularly, you know, m- most Republicans—I mean, even a, a decent Republican, uh, relatively so—is uh, Mitt Romney. He was caught on tape at a private fundraiser talking about the makers versus the takers. That seems to be the way that a lot of Republicans see America and see themselves as the makers, and the rest of us as the takers. We are not, as Manson keeps saying, an entitlement society. We are, in fact, a society in which people are disposable. If you drive around anywhere, particularly here in Los Angeles, you see the growing number of homeless, these encampments. They grow by, by the day. And the people that are on the margins, that are in the shadows, are being disposed of openly. And once you accept that as a society, I think you've lost a lot of your humanity. 
That's right. That's right. I mean, so, you know, for, for 40 years now, we've been sold and, and, and as a society really uh, bought the lie of trickle down economics and neoliberalism um, and this attack, you know, whether it was on public housing or welfare reform in the nineties um, and, and so many of the other kind of public um, services, um, you know, have just been, have been totally gutted and um, people are left as we are seeing in this pandemic really to, to fend for, for ourselves. Um, and, and this idea of makers versus takers, I mean, again, who's doing the taking is the rich and powerful who, who are making, you know, untold profits and wealth um, off of the, the work and the, and the suffering of, of poor people. I mean, we can see this again in the pandemic where, um, you know, uh, eight million more people fell into poverty, um, you know, in the first year, year and a half of it. Um, and yet over the past two years, um, the richest billionaires in the world and in this country have made uh, upwards of more than $2 trillion. Um, and, and, and all the while, while folks are, are, have still don't have healthcare, uh, still don't have a living wage. I mean, there's not a, a town anywhere in this country where if you're making the federal minimum wage, you can afford a two-bedroom apartment, and yet um, we we have not seen a, a wage raise in in decades. And um, and and so, you know, indeed, a, a society as as Dr. King talked about, um, you know, more than 50 years ago, that that uh, spends more on the military, and that's exactly what we're doing, than on programs of social uplift. Um, that he he said that that kind of society is approaching spiritual death. And I think, you know, when you're talking about the question of homelessness in a in a nation that can build a prefab house in 45 minutes, that in many cities and many towns has five abandoned houses for every homeless person. And yet we have, you know, 10 to 12 to more million um, people who are unhoused um, and we're facing an eviction crisis that that is really un, unseen before. Um, uh, you know, to, we are indeed living in a, in a society where, where um, the have-nots are, are completely expendable, completely disposable, and, and that that's not some small section of the population. That's a, a greater and growing number of, of people. I mean, when close to half of your population is living in poverty or, or so close to it that they can't afford a couple hundred dollar emergency without, you know, potentially losing their house or not being able to keep the lights on. That is not a secure and free and wonderful democracy, but instead, indeed, as a, a nation that's approaching this kind of spiritual death that Dr. King talked about. So let's take a brief station break, and we'll be back continuing the conversation with the Reverend Dr. Liz Thea Harris, the co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign. Read about generosity.
Welcome back, I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org and we're continuing the conversation here as we approach Christmas with the Reverend Dr. Liz Thea Harris, who's the co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, alongside Bishop William J. Barber II and the director of the Carus Center for Religion, Rights and Social Justice at the Union Theological Seminary. As an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church who teaches at the Union Theological Seminary, she's the author of Always With Us and co-author of Revive Us Again, and her latest book is We Cry Justice, Reading the Bible with the Poor People's Campaign. And she has an article at Politico, Congress approved $778 billion for the Pentagon. That means we can afford Build Back Better. And of course, the Pentagon is one of the only in terms of the budget, in terms of those who vote for the budget on Capitol Hill, it's the only example of uh, bipartisanship, really, in this divided and polarized uh, politics that we have. Both Democrats and Republicans just give the Pentagon a, a rubber stamp. And it seems to be that somehow or other, in, this, in our society, we are perfectly fine, at least our political leaders are perfectly fine, with refining the quality of death but they can't come around to improving the quality of life. And look how difficult it is to get even the bipartisan infrastructure bill. They haggled over that for the longest time, and now the human infrastructure bill, Build Back Better, is being stalled and torpedoed. Why is it that we cannot invest in our own fellow citizens and have a better life for all Americans? Why do we have to have a better ability to kill people abroad? Well, we often have the saying, you know, uh, you know, as a Christian minister and as a biblical scholar that, that, you know, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And, and right now in the United States, we spend 53 cents of every discretionary dollar on the military and less than 15 cents on health care and education and anti-poverty programs all combined. Um, and so, so we can surely see what the priorities of our nation are, not the priorities of the people, not what the people are wanting and demanding and, and organizing for, but where those that have been you know, elected, um, some of them more smuggled into office because of the attack on voting rights, um, who then put forward policies and, and budgets um, that are deeply moral documents, but that show that, again, uh, as you said it, um, our nation values death um, and killing more than life and, and saving. And so, um, uh, you know, this, this is, this is an incredibly problematic um, situation to be living in, but, but there is still hope. I mean, what, what we're seeing is that folk all over the country are coming together and organizing in, in profound ways, um, coming together across the lines that divide us, um, that we might have a, a very partisan division happening within the U S Congress, but, but in the kind of, uh, communities across this nation, there are people of all races, all sexualities, all religions um, from all places who who all are saying, you know, we need living wages. We need to invest in this human infrastructure. We have to invest in the infrastructure of our democracy. And and then we also still do need those those clean pipes and those that let out of our water, but then also, you know, buildings and, and bridges and all of this. Um, and so, you know, we are in, in a moment of, of some level of crisis in the nation. Um, but it's, it's not because we, we can't do better than this. Um, it's because those who are in power, who have the, the, 
the ability to to you know make things better for people are refusing to do so. Um, and I think we can see this especially when we look at at military spending and military budgets. I mean, since 2001, um, since September 11th of 2001, our nation has spent $21 trillion on things related to militarism, whether it's the deportation and detention system, whether it's the border wall, whether it's it's these unending wars um, and uh, you know all, all the militarization of our communities. Um, and yet, as you said it, we are struggling to find even just $1.7 trillion over 10 years to be able to invest in, in people. Um, and so what this means is that people are going to have to keep on organizing and, and making it very clear that, um, that when Joe Manchin, when Kirsten Sinema, when, when uh, Republican and Democratic senators um, and Congress people stand in the way of, of progress and of justice and of what people need and, and, and want, um, that that we have the power to do something about that, and and so we in the Poor People's Campaign are are organizing a massive assembly this coming June, a massive Poor People and Low Wage Workers Assembly, a moral march on Washington, because we really believe that the nation needs to hear this declaration that it does not have to be this way, and that people are able to come forward and organize and mobilize and and be able to put forward the solutions um, that are at hand, um, that are within reach. Um, it's not coming up with something that is just pie in the sky, but um, but really to to you know lift the load of poverty and to address systemic racism and to save the earth and to you know demilitarize our communities and and our our world and and to then also push back on this distorted narrative of of kind of religious and Christian nationalism that that really helps to hold a lot of this together. Well, it is extraordinary the way that. We have such a difficult time, and we may not even get the $1.7 trillion in human infrastructure from Build Back Better over 10 years. That's over 10 years, I repeat, 10 years. The Pentagon, even though ostensibly it's $778 billion a year, the real budget for the military is about a trillion because you'd, they've been able to slough off different parts of the military budget to different departments, like the Department of Energy has nuclear weapons, the Department of Transportation has the Coast Guard, pensions are sloughed off, veterans affairs are sloughed off. So the real figure is about a trillion a year. So that's $10 trillion for the military over 10 years, as opposed to $1.7 trillion over 10 years. So just do the math. But I'm also just in the last few minutes, Dr. Liz, trying to figure out why, I mean, Martin Luther King said, you know, to judge people by the content of their character as opposed to the color of their skin. Can we also judge people by the content of their character as opposed to the amount of money they have in the bank? I mean, the, the Manchin family, you know, again, conservatives in this country talk about family values. Well, the Manchin family make their money from coal. We know that. Manchin's daughter, as the CEO of the drug maker Mylan, was among those responsible for the inflated costs of EpiPens. And they were making millions of vulnerable people and people who could die without an EpiPen. And then her mother, Gail Manchin, used her influence as the head of the National Association of State Boards of Education to push for the requirements that school have EpiPens on hand. So that is not the purpose of government, to enrich yourself. So how does God overcome mammon? Well, this is a this is a great question, and I actually just wrote an article um, that's in the Sojourners, which is a kind of Christian um, 
a publication about the morality of, of Joe Manchin's um, no to build back better, um, where I really raise a bunch of, of these questions. Yeah, I both put, point out that the fact that our Bible is very clear. God is very clear about standing in the way of, of people, you know, using their position to enrich themselves um, at the same time as, as, as depriving the poor of their rights. And the Bible is very clear, and especially this Christmas season, is all about, you know, hope coming out of, out of poor communities, out of the idea that this kind of brown-skinned Palestinian Jewish um, homeless refugee in, in Jesus Christ is, is come to the world to turn it around and to make things right and to usher in, you know, justice and abundance for everybody. And in fact, the Bible is very clear that you can't, you can't worship mammon and that the worst thing to do is to, to, you know, stay up in bed late at night thinking about ways to hurt people, which is much of what Joe Manchin and so many folks with, with, with wealth and power are doing in our society. But again, this is not new. Um, and, and what happens in these moments, these moments of crisis, um, these moments when, when, when those in power with wealth, you know, think that they, they have the, the ultimate say in everything, but that this is when prophetic movements and moral leadership really arises. And I, and I think we see in the life-saving actions that, you know, poor moms in Michigan are, are doing, as well as the rent strikes of folks across California, including in Los Angeles, and as well as the, the powerful organizing that people are saying of, of saving the climate and, and um, asserting that Black Lives Matter and, 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 and so much of the work that people are doing, um, that this is exactly the Christmas story of our moment. And, and that, that those stories um, are about you know, uh, good overcoming evil and um, right overcoming wrong and justice prevailing and um, the poor and marginalized being lifted up and those who have profited off of, uh, you know, the suffering of others being um, pulled down and, and, and humbled. And, and, and so, you know, I think that that's, that's the message of this moment and, and why people need to be, you know, both aware um, that it does not have to be this way, but then also engaged in trying to, to make our communities, you know, better, um, because there are a lot of, of ways to get involved right now to be able to push back and make sure that Mansion and, and so many others in, in our society hear that this is not okay, and we can do better, and we must do better, and that we're going to keep on fighting and organizing and pushing for justice and for truth and for peace until we are able to get it. Well, Reverend Dr. Liz T. Harris, I thank you so much for joining us here as we approach Christmas. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with the Reverend Dr. Liz Thea Harris, the co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival alongside Bishop William J. Barber II and the director of the Caris Center for Religions, Rights and Social Justice at the Union Theological Seminary, an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church who teaches at the Union Theological Seminary. She's the author of Always With Us and co-author of Revive Us Again. And her latest book is We Cry Justice, Reading the Bible with the Poor People's Campaign. And she has an article at Politico, Congress approved $778 billion for the Pentagon. That means we can afford Build Back Better. 
We can take a brief station break. We're back exploring further why we have become a society of winners and losers with so many of our fellow citizens homeless and destitute in what has become a disposable society instead of the entitlement society that Joe Manchin and other conservatives like to argue we are becoming while legislating to prioritize help for the rich and powerful. When you see a good thing in this world and you try to change it to part when you see a white in this world and you try to say he's black if you treat me the way you treated jesus i will beg god to send you out to hell hell will suffer you forever hell will suffer you forever Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Richard Parker, who teaches economics and public policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and is a senior fellow at the Shorenstein Center. He is a former managing editor of Ramparts and was a co-founder of Mother Jones magazine and serves on the editorial board of The Nation. And his books include The Myth of the Middle Class and John Kenneth Galbraith, His Life, His Politics, His Economics. Welcome to Background Briefing, Richard Parker. Good to be with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, as we approach the Christmas holidays, it's ostensibly, of course, celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ, who ministered to the poor, whose focus was largely on uh, social justice. But somehow, I think the message of the gospel, particularly the gospel of St. Matthew, is somewhat lost, particularly nowadays. Uh, The Republican Party is allied with the Christian right that seems to ignore the Beatitudes and, and in fact, the whole life of the prophet Jesus. I don't recall that Jesus hated the poor, that wanted to fly around in private jets and shake down the poorest televangelists do and carry assault rifles and hate homosexuals and want to hang people, etc. So what's happened to this country that was founded by religious uh, zealots, I would suggest, but at least by religious people. Why do you think the Bible and Christianity has sort of been confiscated by the sort of patriots who've taken the high ground and now talk much about the prosperity gospel as opposed to the gospel of St. Matthew? Well, Ian, it's a great question. Um, You know, I, I think I would start by insisting that um, America's always actually, in fact, been a polytheistic country, worshiping both God and mammon, um, and that the culture has uh, been divided around those issues um, ever since the colonial period, and it traces back into deep European history and even uh, back to the uh, story of Jesus and uh, of the Old Testament uh, uh, lineages of uh, Israel that precede Jesus's birth and life and death. Um, I think that what we're seeing is uh, the triumph, not just of mammon, but the ways in which mammon as- attempts to assert its control over uh, the divine. Um, and, you know, we have to be prepared for this as a fact um, and as a condition which recurs uh, throughout human history. I mean, America was, at least in part, uh, regionally, uh, uh, especially in New England and parts of the Middle Atlantic colonies, uh, founded by uh, what you call religious zealots. Um, 
but the southern colonies, uh, particularly uh, uh, South Carolina and uh, uh, Virginia and really uh, uh, North Carolina, were founded by uh, businessmen and uh, uh, aristocrats uh, who were speculative adventurers and for whom there was a formal uh, uh, bow to religion, but who couldn't in any sense be said to be seeking to form religious communities. They were the earlier early practitioners of a kind of globalizing agribusiness mentality who had won large blocks of land grants from the King of England and uh, brought uh, first white indentured servants. And then when they proved inefficient uh, by the owner's terms, began the importation of black slaves from first the Caribbean and then from directly from Africa itself. So I think what we have to do is talk about the, the really quite odd polytheism that is present in America and situate it both in present terms and also in terms of its origins. And how would that history tie in with the cruelty towards the poor that's exhibited? I mean, e even a decent Republican like Mitt Romney was caught on tape at a private fundraiser talking about the makers versus the takers. Sure. And that seems to be a pervasive belief system within the Republican Party. But uh, Senator Manchin, of course, who's torpedoed Biden's Build Back Better agenda, or at least delayed it, or perhaps, you know, we don't know exactly where we stand on that, but still, it's not looking good for Biden. So he's apparently was influenced by a constituent's phone call to his office, which I don't think he even took, a grandmother complaining that her daughter was a crackhead. And that has led him to want to torpedo, at least justify him torpedoing the child tax credit, which has been considered the most effective program in American history to raise children out of poverty. Absolutely. And we have a lot of children in this country right. who are poor as we speak today on this Christmas. They are not going to be having a Merry Christmas. Right. Well, I mean, you know, let's examine Mammon for a moment. I mean, there is in human history that's a, a characteristic which uh, I think is almost pervasive and universal, which is that there are some people whom we can describe as sociopaths or at the end of a spectrum of human decency at the very far edges uh, for whom power is absolutely central. It satisfies their own need uh, for uh, grandeur about their own life and also their sense of uh, uh, very deep inadequacy that sometimes fuels these fantasies of grandeur. Uh, and I think what we need to think about is ways in which those antisocial or psychopathological personalities have the ability to rise to the top of human societies because of their willingness to violate uh, human social norms. The, the Jesus that you talk about the, and the idea of worshiping a God from uh, the point of view of Jesus himself seems to me to be the direct antidote or the direct challenge to that power mentality. But, you know, there is a religion that has been created out of the quest for power, and that power inevitably entails uh, forcing obedience on others and as a sign of that obedience, exacting from others uh, uh, the surplus that uh, others are able to produce. Uh, I think that's at the core of what is deeply corrupt 
about the American capitalist system today, but it is in a sense the modernized version of a deeper and pre-capitalist instinct that so that uh, surfaces in human societies all over the world. It's not seemingly, as best we can tell, the normative personality or the majoritarian personality, but rather the minoritarian, path, almost pathological personality that seeks control over others uh, and uh, signifies it by exacting rewards of subservience and literal transfer of wealth uh, to those who seize power. That's our problem right now. Right, but there's a kind of theologically pornographic version of Christianity now that's pervasive amongst the Christian right, which is a major political constituency of the Republican Party, and that is this end-of-times dogma from the book of Revelation. And that informs, you know, Middle East policy, particularly vis-a-vis Israel, that Israel is supposed to bring about Armageddon so that all of these Southern Baptists can be raptured up into heaven while the rest of us burn in the lake of fire. I mean, this is not just an isolated small clique. This is not something you would find with, with a minor cult. This is We're talking about end-of-times books being the bestsellers right. <laughs> ever. Right. I mean, you know, so- and again, we're in this very strange time right now, Ian, which I'm sure you're aware of, which is that as certain versions, particularly of this white Protestant uh, evangelicalism, and particularly in its more radical fundamentalist forms, becomes ever more radical and disconnected from what you or I would count as normal or decent human behavior or beliefs, the total number of people who say that they're Uh, white evangelicals keeps going down. And the total number of Americans who uh, affiliate with any organized religion keeps going down as well. I mean, we're now at a remarkable point for the first time since the 1600s in which the majority of Americans are saying that they no longer uh, affiliate uh, with an organized religion. This is quite Remarkable, and among young people, uh, the 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 percentages uh, are 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 rising and even higher. And so there's something going on in which we are uh, very certainly being pushed further apart. And uh, for this, uh, I uh, blame in large part the the radicalization of the Republican Party. But we can also talk about what it what 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 it was that contributed to that radicalization. Um, I think that there are too many liberals and critics of liberals who, quote unquote, blame liberalism for its radical social values revolutions of the 60s and 70s as igniting this deep resentment and uh, and anger uh, within the, uh, the conservative Christian uh, minority. Uh, but I think, in all honesty, that's not true. It goes back much longer and much more deeply into uh, American history. You can see it in the antebellum period uh, of America, in which many of these same people's ancestors were themselves hugely filled with resentment and anger of various kinds uh, toward what they saw as an emerging Republican Party, which was at that point uh, willing to take on the issue of slavery, uh, even though it wasn't willing to offer equality to African-Americans with the abolition of slavery. 
And again, I'm speaking with Richard Parker, who teaches economics and public policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and is a senior fellow at the Shorenstein Center. He's the former managing editor of Ramparts, was a co-founder of Mother Jones magazine and serves on the editorial board of The Nation. And his books include The Myth of the Middle Class and John Kenneth Galbraith, His Life, His Politics, His Economics. Now, there's absolutely no reason why liberals should be defensive because history indicates that they've done all the heavy lifting, uh, whereas the conservatives have just said no to everything, no to ending slavery, no to ending child labor, no to allowing women to vote and women's rights and uh, human rights and civil rights and so on. That's the record. And just to finish up with the evangelicals, if you have an investment in the end of the world, that means you don't give a damn about the environment. And right. so I guess to some extent that explains that attitude. But let's talk a little bit about what's happening now, or at least what seems to be happening to now, is we can actually look ahead and not see light at the end of the tunnel, but see a freight train of of an American form of fascism barreling towards us because right. the Republican Party is engaged in comprehensive but brazen voter suppression at every level. They're shameless about it. It's all in the open. They'd rather cheat than compete. And I just, for the life of me, don't understand why the entire Democratic Party or most decent Americans aren't up in arms about it because this gets to the heart of American democracy, which we all celebrate. But it will be a mockery within two to four years if the current trajectory continues. So I, I think you're you're absolutely right that uh, we face an enormous challenge. Uh, but I also think that there are reasons uh, to think that there are bright spots. Uh, one is that I think that we have a huge demographic turn that's pushing the country toward a more progressive rather than a more regressive future. Uh, second, I do think that there's a chance in the next year or two that one or two of the conservative justices, as well as Justice Breyer, uh, might step down or leave the bench by virtue of health or death. Uh, I think that what we have to do is uh, continue to focus on where we can fight rather than how we're likely to be defeated. When my students uh, celebrated the day after the election in 2020, uh, almost as if they had seen the risen Lord, uh, I reminded them that what we had just gone through was, uh, in m- historical terms, much more like the Battle of Stalingrad, which had been hand-to-hand, door-to-door, house-to-house combat, which the Soviets had won over the Nazis. But there was still 2,000 miles to proceed west to the final vanquishment of the the Hitler regime and the fall of Berlin. And I think, in a sense, it's really very important to talk to young people and to talk to listeners of your program about the the certainty of our combined will not to be defeated. I think that's that posture of willfulness, of moral centeredness, particularly at a a Christmas season like this where we're trying to contemplate values, even if we don't live values, that we need to re-inspire ourselves with the courage and determination to defeat these people and defeat them soundly. They're not going to go away. They're never going to go away. They will reappear in manifestly new forms in our children's lives and our grandchildren's lives, just as they were there in our parents' and grandparents' lives. My 
My father and mother lived through McCarthyism in the late 40s and 1950s. My grandparents lived through the Red Scare, where thousands of Americans were arrested. My ancestors were among those who were arrested for violation of the Alien and Sedition Acts at the end of the 18th century. This is a terrible, dark aspect of American history that is not a story simply of race, but of power. Right now, much of the left is preoccupied with race as a defining dimension of power. And I would only caution that while there is much that can be explained by race, racial analysis and by intrinsic racism, this idea that there is a uniform white privilege that can't be then disaggregated into the structures of power of white exploiting white uh, is an absolutely suicidal direction politically uh, to be taking. What we need now is not only a demonstration of our will, but a seeking of allies where we can find them. Well, it's comforting to know that there's a majority in this country that reflects the better angels. But the minority, obviously, is noisy and aggressive, and some of the recent polling is quite alarming about, what, 78% of Republicans believe that Joe Biden is not a legitimate president. And the University of Chicago did a recent study within that group of stop the steal believers. There's about 21 million Americans who feel that violence may be necessary to bring back Donald Trump to his rightful position as, right. as uh, the next president or the president that <laughs> should have been there all along. So <laughs> right. this is a, a belief system that's out there. They are also, the Republicans, through voter suppression, creating the architecture for a one-party state. And a one-party state that's based on the tyranny of the minority. In the states of Texas, they've already implemented a tyranny of the minority, and they're doing so in the state of Florida. These are key states. Right. So is it quite simply that the majority has got to assert itself? Because you could make the case that a secession is underway, not unlike the Civil War, but this time it's basically a minority of red states who've decided they don't want to live with the rest of us. Right. They don't want to live in a multicultural America, and they're going to come up with a way to maintain power and make the rest of us second-class citizens. Right. So we have, I think, several things that we have to recognize. I do think that we're supported by a majority of Americans. I also think that change is brought about by minorities, not by majorities in the vanguard. Majorities uh, will find in minorities vanguard elements with which they agree, but it's simply not the case that we can always count on progressive change coming only after a majority reaches a decision that that change is necessary. The Republicans understand that because it's a it's a truism about reactionary change as well as progressive change. What we can't do is lose our nerve in the sight of these approaching uh, battles. Um, you know, I think that again, what I, I constantly emphasize to my students is that we're in a transformative moment in American history. One of half a dozen or so similar event moments have occurred. Uh, over the last 200 years, and to uh, try to draw a conclusion about what the outcome will be in an immediate sense is a fool's errand. Uh, immediate outcomes can go different ways. What we have to do is look 
further down the road and position ourselves for the long battle with the commitment that we will not surrender. Uh, and it's that that I think is the starting place that we need to encourage in one another um, uh, uh, on this Christmas season. But your analysis of what the Republicans are up to is absolutely right. I mean, Churchill looking at the Germans in the mid 1930s, I'm sure felt about Chamberlain, uh, not uh, a feeling dissimilar from what many of the listeners here feel about the current uh, Democratic Party or large elements of the Democratic Party and fear that uh, as they can see, uh, as, as Churchill watched the Germans rebuild, uh, that war was coming. I think war is coming. I think a harder period than we've been through is about to emerge. But I also am uh, prepared for that in the sense that I plan to battle uh, to my last breath. Uh, I don't want to be melodramatic about this, uh, but uh, at 75, I do think about last breaths. And uh, I see this as a worthwhile battle because in winning it, we will transform not just America, but set in motion transformative and progressive forms uh, of change that are global. It'll uh, accelerate uh, the carbon revolution and moving beyond carbon, and it will slow and even hopefully reverse the moves toward authoritarianism that exist in places like China and Russia and Hungary and India and uh, Turkey and uh, uh, and the Philippines and, and all the rest, uh, but it will only come uh, if we are prepared to fight. Well, I often say that I'm trying to build a reality-based community in post-truth America, and that that's yep. the purpose of these interviews, like the interview that we're doing now, Richard. And yep. to some extent, it's predicated upon the idea that this 18th century idea of enlightenment, that if you come up with the best argument, that you therefore win. Right. No, and that's that, not right. No, no, that's not yeah, that's right. That's not working. So what, what does work? I think there are several things. I think one is to take electoral politics seriously and recognize that electoral politics in this case means not just presidential campaigns quadrennially, but the pursuit of control uh, of the electoral process on an ongoing basis that moves down to the city uh, and uh, school board level. You can see that being attempted now by the right. And uh, I think that we just have to imagine ourselves, reimagine ourselves as engaged in the electoral aspects of political life uh, 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 much more continually uh, than we have to date. We have delegated out the actual seeking after power and too often have contented ourselves with commentary uh, about uh, those who are seeking the power and how uh, unsuccessful it is. There is a line uh, that needs to be crossed, which is a very John Dewey, uh, uh, Richard Rorty, uh, American pragmatist tradition line, which is of direct engagement and a recognition that knowledge is uh, meant to be a democratic process, not a body of of received wisdoms, and we need to be doing that. I think second, we need to step away from some of the more, uh, 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 I don't want to call them vulgar, it's wrong. I think we need to step away from being preoccupied with the comments section of newspapers and magazines and step away from uh, too much of uh, uh, reactionary uh, uh, talk, radio and TV. Uh, let's 
sort of declare a holiday of uh, indifference to Laura Ingraham and to Sean Hannity and to Tucker Carlson and concentrate on the story that we mean to tell about what the future uh, of America could look like. Uh, I think that's where uh, we find the allies uh, who have uh, not been voting with us every time that there have been municipal elections, whether here in California or in many parts of the U.S., it's that sense of entwining our politics and our lives with the lived and often simply economic experience of the lived reality of so many millions of people's lives that explains why we're actually in a period where we're seeing an unprecedented level of voter participation. I mean, we may despair of democracy, but there are, on a percentage basis, uh, more Americans uh, participating in elections uh, than ever before. Not, and that's that's really quite extraordinary. We hit a rock bottom period in the late 20th century that seems to have uh, reversed itself. And, it, and we need to build on those quite visible and meaningful trends throughout the country. Uh, at Harvard, we're uh, one of uh, many uh, universities across the country that are uh, uh, taking active steps to make sure that all of our students 18 and over are enrolled to vote and then uh, actually vote. And uh, at Harvard, there are a group of us who are moreover working to uh, provide time off from class or in some cases actual class credit for field work that involves participating in the electoral process in, their, in students' home states. So there's a lot that can be done on uh, the level of educators, uh, a lot that can be done on the level of small businesses, a lot that can be done by professionals uh, in terms of supporting this. We've seen also an explosion of millions and millions of dollars flowing through the small donor channel that have been opened up by groups like Act Blue. Uh, you have to remember that while so much of what we do is worry about these gargantuan super PACs funded by billionaires, at last count, the sum total of donor contributions that were $2,500 to $200 exact, actually exceeded the money collected by the super PACs with their, their million-dollar donations. That's material. That's a new, like the, um, like the rising number of voters, emerging sign that more and more people share views somewhat similar to ours, Ian. And I think we need to remind our people of that, uh, even as we see and foretell the dangers ahead. So just in the last minute, do you think uh, there's any immediate advice that can be given to how to get around a mansion and not see uh, Biden's agenda dissipate or even collapse altogether? I, th I think they're going to do a deal. Uh, I mean, I hate to say it. I think they're going to do a deal that's smaller than the one that you or I or the Progressive Caucus or President Biden wants or say we want. Uh, but we need to do the deal with Manchin and keep moving. The next big move, which I think Biden is prepared to take on, is voting rights. And we need to just keep winning and uh, uh, victories that echo out to different constituencies in the country. Uh, I think the other part is for more and more of us to dig into uh, the legislation that has passed already, and hopefully some version of this Build Back Better that I believe will be passed, uh, to be able to articulate 
the specific benefits that derive from this legislation. Right now, I know you're aware of this, and I certainly am. There are millions of people who have no idea what are in these vast packages that constitute trillions of dollars of commitment of federal funds. Uh, and that's a mistake. I mean, what we know from the Obamacare experience was the majority of Americans hate Obamacare, but then when you break it down into component parts for no pre-existing conditions, uh, the ability to carry your kids until 26 on uh, family health plans, et cetera, et cetera, the vast majority of Americans love those things. We have to think about ways to decompose what we've already achieved and go out and be uh, uh, our own form of uh, evangelists uh, for uh, what's been created in the world that can come with it. Well, Richard Parker, I thank you very much for joining us here today. And it's always a good thing to talk with you and to talk with your listeners. And let me wish you the very best for the holidays, including a Merry Christmas for your family. Well, thank you, and the same to you, Richard. And I've been speaking with Richard Parker, who teaches economics and public policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and is a senior fellow at the Shorenstein Center. He's a former managing editor of Ramparts and was a co-founder of Mother Jones Magazine and serves on the editorial board of The Nation. And his books include The Myth of the Middle Class and John Kenneth Galbraith, His Life, His Politics, His Economics. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half